<clears throat> so as a little recap of where we've been. First, uh, you had Adam and Eve, how God intended it to be, and then the fall. And then Noah with the flood and that God will judge sin, but that he, await, he provides a way of salvation. Um, you have the promise that was made to Abraham. And then after the promise, they went into slavery in Egypt. And then God, God saved them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them out into what he said was he promised, the promised land. And so you had Moses during that time. Then you moved into the conquest and judges where you had uh, Joshua and Judges and Ruth took place during this time. And then after the period of the Judges, they rejected God as their king, and they wanted an earthly king. And then you had the time of the United Kingdom. So you had Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. And then after Solomon, the United Kingdom of Israel was split into an upper and lower Israel and Judah. So you had the period of the divided kingdom, which a, a big portion of the, the Old Testament is devoted to that, to the period of of the, the prophets that lived during that time. Um, and then during that exile, they were, then they were exiled. Northern kingdom was exiled by Assyria first, and then the southern kingdom was exiled by Babylon. During that exile, you have things such as um, the book of Esther and David who um, were living outside um, the promised land, living in exile. We read about their stories. And then after the exile, um, God had promised that he would bring his people back and then you move into Ezekiel and Nehemiah. And so now we're moved back into the land or coming back into the land. As several different groups come back at different times to come back. And so that's where we have found ourselves today in the book of Nehemiah. Um, <clears throat> Ezra was a priest. He came back first. Nehemiah came back as governor. So there's your, your setting the stage and where we are. So before we jump in, let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you not only for your word, that we can study it and know who you are and know who we are, but Father, that you've given us so much of it. Father, we thank you that you've told us how you intended things to be, where things went wrong, and given us a promise for a hope for a future. And you've given that promise in the, since the very first people, since Adam and Eve. You have been giving us a promise and a hope for a future and you have unfolded your story throughout time and that story came to its climax in the in in your son in the third person in the person of the trinity jesus christ god the son who came to earth lived as a human lived a perfect life died for our sins rose from the dead and will come again one day father i pray that as we study your word and and all that you've shared with us in it that we would study it to understand what did it mean then, what were you trying to teach then, and how does that apply to us now? Because the Scripture tells us that all things were written for our instruction. And so, Father, I pray that we would have open hearts and minds and receptive hearts to receive your message and that we would be determined to apply it to our lives and be changed because of it. We love you, Father, and we thank you. Please guide this, this sermon in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Nehemiah loved God. Nehemiah was dedicated and obedient to God. Nehemiah served God faithfully. We read about Nehemiah's love for God in the beginning. When we open up the book of Nehemiah, we look in first chapter, starting in the first verse. This is the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. It said, The words of Nehemiah, 
son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev in the twentieth year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with me from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, The remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah had a heart for God. Nehemiah loved God. Nehemiah loved God's people. He was one of God's chosen people, the Israelites. He had a desire to see God's kingdom come back. Isn't that what Jesus told us to pray? Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here, the people have been exiled and they understand what it's like to live under a foreign king. They understand what it's like to live in bondage, to live in exile, where they can't just freely worship their God as, they would, as God had told them to, where they don't have a temple set up to do their sacrifices the way that God told them to. And so they understood the, the distress of not seeing God's kingdom earthly present as it was, as God wants it to be, for people to see his kingdom on earth. And so Nehemiah had a heart, and he knew that even though some of the ex exiles had returned, even though a remnant had returned, they still had not restored the temple and the walls the way that God intended them to be. The, the city was not restored the way the city was supposed to be. The holy city, Jerusalem, is what the Old Testament calls it, the holy city. And so his heart is broken for his people, for the city, and for God's name. Nehemiah believed God's promise. He quoted it. And it said, God had promised, if you don't obey me, if you turn to other gods, I'm going to exile you. I'm going to banish you and send you away. But if you return to me, then I will bring a remnant back. And Nehemiah held on to that promise. He grasped a hold of that promise in the same way that we look forward to Jesus' return. Jesus said that he will return one day. We look forward to that. Jesus said that God is going to restore the earth and make a new earth that's perfect, without sin, without pain. We look forward to that. We grab on to that hope. 
We know what God's will is going to look like on earth, perfectly lived out. And we long for it. And Nehemiah longed for that in his day, to see God's earthly kingdom set up and strong and present where God's name is being revered and God's name is being raised up in praise and they can worship him unhindered the way God had told them to. Nehemiah believed God's promise that if they would return to him and carefully observe his commands, God would bring them back from the farthest horizon and restore their kingdom back to them. So Nehemiah stepped out in faith. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 10 says this, During the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, this is the king that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to, When wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why are you sad when you aren't sick? There is nothing but sadness. This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my requests, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sambalat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Nehemiah risked his life in what he did. He knew that you are not allowed to be somber and sad in the king's presence. No matter how you felt, no matter how your day went, no matter how things were going, when you came into the king's presence, you were to suck it up and you were to put a smile on your face. Because the king was supposed to just make you happy. And he knew that his request to go and build the city walls of Jerusalem, he knew they could be turned on him as a traitor. Why? Why go build up a city? What's your plans? What do you intend to do? Do you tend to rally these people? Do you tend to rebel against me? I mean, anything could go wrong. Just, just, just run, through the, run through the ideas. Any, any, any way, there's a number of ways that this could have went south for Nehemiah. And the king had the authority to throw in prison and kill anybody that he felt was a threat or just was disobedient to him. But he was willing to take the chance. He was willing to take the chance to risk his life to do what he felt God wanted to do. He felt God wanted the, his people, even if it wasn't him. You know, we, we find ourselves in that situation. We know what God wants. 
and we think, you know what, I know this is what God wants. Maybe He wants me to do it, maybe not. But I'm going to try. If he, if, if he does, He's going to make it work. If not, it's not going to happen, but I'm going to try. But see, in Nehemiah's case, he knew that he could die. I mean, how many of us live in fear of life and death to go out and obey what God has told us to do? We don't. You know, what do we live in fear of? We live in fear of, of losing a friendship. We live in fear of losing a job. Which I'm not saying that those aren't things that shouldn't worry us or concern us. But we're not in fear of losing our life. And that's what, that's what Nehemiah was in fear of. That's what Esther was in fear of. Nehemiah risked his life and asked for a great and seemingly impossible responsibility to be placed on him because he had a hope and a vision for the future. And he believed it was what God wanted as well. And, it was what God, and it, if it was what God wants, then who would be able to stop him? That was Nehemiah's all-in mentality. If this is what God wants, nobody's going to be able to stop me. If God is for me, who can be against me? He realized it was what God wanted when King Artaxerxes granted him his request. That was his confirmation. You know how people look for a confirmation? People pray and pray and pray and they look for something to let them know is this yes or no, go for it, don't go for it. I think that was, I think that was Nehemiah's confirmation right there. When the king said, okay, I'll give you the timber to rebuild, I'll give you the time away from me, I'll let you go do it. I think that was his confirmation that he knew that all these prayers that he had been praying to God to allow this to happen, that God granted his request. So now let's get to it. Nehemiah 2, picking up in verse 11. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall, so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been, had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. So Nehemiah, when he got there, he took his vision that he had. He went around and assessed the situation. He created a plan. And then he cast the vision and his passion to the people. But the one thing that we don't want to miss in all of this is he saturated the whole thing from the very beginning to the very end in prayer. The very first thing when he heard about the walls who had, had fallen, he prayed. He prayed to God. He asked God, please, please lift your name up. Please restore the walls to this people. Please use me. 
Then when he went to King Artaxerxes, and it was time for him to actually ask King Artaxerxes for him to be able to go and do this, it said as soon, in that context, in that conversation, it said then he prayed to God. He was praying to God, please allow king, the king to, to, to allow this to happen, to give me what I need and to send me on my way. And then when he gets there, he assesses the whole situation and he prays. He prays that God's name would no longer be in disgrace. He saturates the whole thing in prayer. And he tries, he tries to be as obedient as he could to do what God had called him to do. So when we have situations in life, and we talked about this this morning in our Sunday school class, when we're faced with situations in life, things that we think we can handle, what's the first thing we should do? Go to, pray, go to God in prayer. It's so easy to not go to God in prayer. It's so easy to see a situation, think, okay, what's my solution? How can I fix this problem? And then just go after it. It's so easy to not go to God in prayer when we think we can handle it, when we can do it on our own. But we should always be in a state of constant prayer, constantly asking God to do more than we can do, better than we can do, for Him to step in and step into every single one of our situations. Nehemiah was definitely a man of prayer. And he was also a man who decided, I'm praying, I'm going to ask God to do this, I'm going to give credit to God to do this, but I'm going to do my best to be obedient and do what God, I know God wants us to do. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 through 14, when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. You see, everything Nehemiah does, he doesn't just do it. He doesn't just station a man or station. He also prays to them. He prays to God. He prays about the situations that they're in. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails. Since there is so much rubble, we will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. So their enemies had planned to sneak in and kill the people who were working on the walls of Jerusalem. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall. At the vulnerable areas, I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. They put their lives on the line to accomplish the rebuilding of a city, knowing that if they didn't put their lives on the line, then their lives were going to at risk anyway. They were willing to step up and put their own lives on the line in order to take care of the next generation instead of putting off what they knew they should do to let the next generation deal with it. They knew when they were threatened, when people started attacking them, they knew building this wall, restoring the, the, the walls of this city is going, could possibly cost me my life. 
but I'm doing this in order to protect my countrymen, my sons and daughters, our wives and our homes. I have to. I have to. Nehemiah 4, 15 to 23. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. See, even here, he doesn't say, okay, the men that we stationed to be guards, that we frustrated their plan. Nehemiah said, no, 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 God frustrated their plan. Nehemiah credits God with every single thing they do throughout this whole book. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside him, beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work, while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, Let everyone and his servant spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. They armed themselves because they knew that was the situation they were in. Our lives are at stake. Uh, you know, we could be killed. There's an enemy that wants to, de to, to, to defeat us. So they, they always had their armory on them. They always had their weapons on them to defend themselves. And it's the same picture that's painted in the New Testament. In Ephesians, we're told to put on our armor, our spiritual armor, because we are in a battle, not against flesh and blood like Nehemiah and, and the Israelites were, but against spiritual forces, against an enemy that you can't see, that wants to take you out. And the enemy wants to kill you just as much, and I would guarantee far more, than the enemies wanted to kill Nehemiah and the other countrymen in the day. You have an enemy that wants to take you out, that wants to stop you from doing the work that God has planned for you to do. And Paul tells us we've got to put on our armor to fight against the attacks of Satan, the attacks of demons, the attacks of the enemy. And we have to hold our sword of truth, which is the word of God and the Holy Spirit living within us. We, must, we are in a battle. And if we ever slack off and act like we're not in a battle and let our guard down, that's when the enemy will start to prevail and have his way instead of us moving God's kingdom forward as he has called us to do. Here are the people of God living in real danger of their lives in order to rebuild the kingdom of God that had been decimated because of their own abandoning of what God had called them to do in previous generations. Because the Israelites in previous generations had abandoned God and disobeyed God and abandoned the covenant with God, that's why they were in the situation they were in now. The previous generations had failed to walk with God. It says Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. 
and the Israelites abandoned their walk with God. The results were disastrous. So then that brings us back full circle to us. What about us? Are we in a good place or a bad place because of the previous generations of those who walked with God before us or didn't walk with God before us? And I'll go ahead and tell you with a resounding great place. We're in a, we're in a resounding great place to have the, the people who have walked with God before us have laid a foundation and created a situation in which we are in a church worshiping God freely. That we were raised, uh, I mean, I can't say for every person in here, but I would say overwhelmingly the people in this room, you know you were raised under the word of God. You were taught it as a child. You were taught it growing up. And that's because of people that came before us that we owe gratitude to for standing and walking with God and passing that torch on to us. And we have to make sure that we're passing the torch on and that we're creating a generation or a situation for the generation coming after us better than the one that we're in. Always moving the kingdom forward. Always making sure that the kingdom of God is, looks more like what God wants it to for the next generation than for our own. I said it, I think, last week. If it wasn't for, for men and women 2,000 years ago when Jesus planted the church and sent out people to go and spread the gospel, if they would not have continued to put their life on the line, continued to put their life on the line, to continue to spread the gospel message, we, on the other side of the planet, two year, 2,000 years removed, would not even have a copy of this. We would not even know God's word. And we cannot take that for granted. And that must, that must motivate us for those who are here with us now, but those who are coming behind us, for that next generation to make sure that we are doing all we can to build the kingdom stronger for them, to repair the walls everywhere that we see a hole, everywhere that we see a crumble, everywhere that we see a problem, that we're working to, to fix things and not just put it off and say to the next generation, well, I'm just, I'm just going to sit back and relax and I'm going to let you, you deal with it. No, we've got to work hard because if we don't, then the enemy's going to come in and, and, and take us out. And it could happen in America. It could easily happen in America that the church could fall to the wayside and we would just be a remnant living in a country that is no longer uh, have anything to do with God, that those who are faithful to God are now just a remnant. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be that way in the future. It could, we could be a country that has a great revival and an awakening in which we come back full force to God. So what are we going to do? We've got to rebuild the walls that have been torn down for our sons and daughters, for our husbands and wives, for our homes, and for our countrymen going forward. When Sambalat Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at that time I had not installed the doors in the city gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They had asked him to come down and they were planning to harm him. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? 
I am doing an important work, and I cannot come down. Four times they sent me the same proposal, and I gave them the same reply. I am doing an important work, and I cannot come down. Again, I am doing an important work, and I cannot come down. Again, they asked. I am doing an important work. I cannot come down. Again, they asked. And I replied, I am doing an important work, and I cannot come down. I cannot leave my important work to go do something that's less important. Sam Ballot sent me the same message a fifth time by his aide, one who had an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem agrees, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are rebuilding the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and have even set up the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf, there is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king. So come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you're spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But now, my God, strengthen my hands. Now, my God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah never stopped praying from the very beginning to the very end. He knew that if God's kingdom was going to move forward, it was going to have to be by God's strength. And he prayed to God, Strengthen my hands to do this important work. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The same thing that Nehemiah prayed for God to do for them is in essence the same thing that we see Paul talking about in the New Testament. Is that this strength by which I obey God, the strength by which I live out this hard, difficult life on earth, this strength that I have in me to, to, to live life for God on this planet with all these problems, with all these things coming my way, with all these things trying to stop me, that life that I live is not me by my own strength. It is Christ living through me. Because I couldn't do it without the Holy Spirit of God in me. And I, I can tell you personally, I don't know about y'all, I'm sure y'all would agree if you sat down and thought about it long enough. I know who I used to be before Christ. I know who I am after the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell in me. And I'm telling you, I didn't have the strength to change and, and to be the person that I am today on my own. It was the Holy Spirit coming into me, taking my heart of stone, changing it to a heart of flesh, changing my desires, changing my will, giving me a love for God, that changes who I am. And that's what the scripture says. The Holy Spirit will come into you and make you into a new creation. You will not be the same person you used to be when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. You won't. You will not be the same person. God will change you through the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens. Jesus Christ comes to live in you and changes you. So what happened? Nehemiah 6, 15 and 16, the wall was completed in 52 days. 52 days. 
on the 25th day of the month of Elul. When all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence for they realized this task had been accomplished by our God. From beginning to end, Nehemiah said, if this happens, it's going to be by God's strength and God's doing. God's going to do this. And when it did, and they accomplished a seemingly impossible task in 52 days, he said it was by God that it was accomplished, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew we couldn't have done it without him. Nehemiah knew he was doing an important work. He said in verses 3 and 4, I'm doing important work and cannot come down. So the question is, what is the work that we are supposed to be doing today. Nehemiah knew what God had laid on his heart to do. Nehemiah knew God had laid on his heart to go and be the governor and to lead the rebuilding of this city. And honestly, if Nehemiah had said, no, I'm sure God, I know God would have used somebody else, but, but just the fact you see Nehemiah, the way he did it, the way he, he, he performed the work, and the way he always gave credit to God, I'm so glad he said yes. I'm so glad he was the man that said yes. I'm so glad he did submit himself to God and was willing to put his life at stake to do what he knew God wanted him to do. The question for us today is, what is the work that God has called us to do? What is the work that we know we are to do that we have to say with utter confidence when somebody asks us to to stop from that work, to move away from that work, that we know our answer is, I am doing an important work and I cannot come down. No matter how many times they ask us, Our answer will always be, I know I'm doing an important work and I can't leave it to get busy doing something else. What is the work that God has called us today to do? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came near and said to them, this is the last thing he said to them before he ascended into heaven. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always. He gave us as a church work to do. He gave us something to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'm going to say it because some people, most people don't, but some people feel that there's a conflict between discipleship and evangelism. But there's not. Because what Jesus told us to do was to go and make disciples. To baptize them. What's that? That's the evangelism part. You go, share the gospel, they accept Jesus through faith, and you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what do disciples do? Disciples evangelize. They go out and evangelize. And then once they evangelize, then what do they do? They don't say, okay, find me somebody else. What's next? All right, come to church. Pay your tithe, sit in this pew. That's not what he does. It's not just evangelism. He says, and then, once they embrace Christ, once they accept Christ, then teach them everything I've commanded them. Teach all of it to them. 
Teach them. Study my word together. Because they don't know. Teach it to them. Walk through it with them. You are to be a disciple of Christ. And your work is to make more disciples of Christ. You're to evangelize by sharing the gospel, which leads to the baptism. Once they embrace Christ, you are to grow them to maturity in Christ. You're to go through the scriptures with them and teach them what God has commanded them. And so a question I asked, I don't know how many Sundays ago it was, this idea, well, how do I know if I feel like I need to be discipled? I've been a Christian for a long time. What's an easy way to know? Do I still need to be discipled intentionally somehow? Do you know what Christ has commanded you? Have you been taught what Christ has commanded you? Have you do you know Christ's commands? If you don't know, then yeah, you need somebody to sit down with you and walk through the scriptures together and teach you. If you do, you need to be busy going out and sharing that with other people and helping others to grow to maturity. What is our work to be done that we cannot step away from? Our work as a church is to be disciples who make disciples until Christ comes back. Because that's what Jesus told us to do. Go and make disciples until I come back. And I will be with you until then. I will be with you until I come back. What is our work that is so important that we cannot step down from it? It is to be disciples who make disciples. That is the work Jesus has given us that we can do the rest of our life and never finish until he comes back. And what happens as a result of that? The kingdom is evident. The kingdom is seen. The kingdom comes to earth in the way that it is in heaven. People see the kingdom of God. People see people living in love. People see people caring for each other. People see people treating each other with love and fellowship. And what did the New Testament church do in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached to the, to the people there in Jerusalem and they asked Peter, Brothers, what must we do to be saved? What should we do? And Peter said, Repent. Be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's what he told them. Turn from sin, be baptized, embrace Christ. You will be forgiven of your sins. You will receive the Holy Spirit. And then immediately it follows by what the church did. It said and on that day, 3,000 people were baptized on that day. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, which is what Jesus told them to do in making disciples, to teach them everything I've commanded you. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. What should the church look like? It should look like a body of believers who devote themselves to the teachings, to fellowshipping with each other, to breaking bread together, and to praying together. That's what the church should look like as a natural result of disciples who are being disciples who are making disciples. And that should drive everything we do here in this church. Our focus and vision should be wrapped around this idea that we are disciples who make disciples. And that our church should look like a group of people who devote themselves to the scriptures, who regularly fellowship together, 
enjoy each other's company. That's what fellowship is. We, we, we hang out with each other. We share meals with each other. We, we enjoy each other's company. We get to know each other. We build personal family relationships with each other. We fellowship together. We participate in the Lord's communion together, the Lord's supper together, through the breaking of bread together. And we pray together. We pray about what, God, what it is God's wanting to do in our church, in our lives, with people that we have come in contact with. And we pray together. And that should drive everything we do, who we are. That is the work that we are to do. And we are to not get distracted and come down from that to do something else, which may seem good, may seem at the time important, but it's too important. The work that Jesus has given us to do is too important to come down from that, to step away from that. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, I've looked around this room, and, and I, I do believe that there's not a lost soul in this room. But, Father, you know our hearts. You know who we are. You know whether we love you, whether we don't love you. Father, we are a gathering today, the church. That's what the church is, a gathering of the saints. We are a gathering of saints here together to worship you today. And Father, I pray that you give us unity, that you unify us, that you pull us together, knit us together, put us on the same path, the same vision, the same direction forward, that we would see your kingdom come on this earth by doing the work that you've given us to do that we would put all our effort into doing this work and that we would put our lives on the line to do this work and accomplish this work you've given us. That we would be willing to put our lives on the line in order to make disciples. Father, we love you. We know that we have an enemy. We know that we have an enemy that wants to tear us down, that wants to stop us from doing the work you've called us to do. But Father, keep us diligent, keep us aware Help us put on our spiritual armor. Help us to fight back. Help us to accomplish the work you've called us to do. Help us to move the kingdom forward to glorify your name so that more people will praise you. That the next generation will have a better kingdom to come to. That the next generation will have a, a better a fortress of people who are standing guard that they can look to and come into the midst of the church that we would do our best to push back enemy forces and to push back the darkness, to move your kingdom forward so that people could be free, that they could be free to be adopted as your sons and daughters. Father, give us a passion and a desire in our hearts that we can't shake. Give us a burning in our bones that won't go away. Father, we love you. And Father, we want to stay committed to the work that you have given us to do. We want, to, we want to do it the rest of our life. As long as you give us on this earth, that is our goal. That is our mission. Father, help us do that. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad y'all made it here today. And I pray that no matter how hard life gets, no matter what we face in this world, that you'll hold on to that hope that hope of God's promises, just like Nehemiah did. He held on to hope. He knew what God had promised, and he knew that there would come a day when God's kingdom would be restored. 
And he held on to that. And that's what drove him to, to take the chances and the risks that he took as he worked through all those seeming oppositions, well, those, not, those obvious oppositions. And so today, I would encourage you to do the same thing, that you would hold on to that hope that God has promised and awaiting us, that future that God has promised us, a restored kingdom in which there will be no, no sin, no enemy, no pain, no problems. And we would sit around. I know I'm a Baptist, and I know I say it a lot. But we're going to sit around a table and eat together. And I'm looking forward to it. I am. I'm looking forward to sitting around with y'all laughing having a good time, eating a good meal, and, and just sharing and talking with each other, sharing our lives together forever. I can't wait until that day, until he calls us home and until he comes back. We're going to rely on his strength. We're going to pray for him to give us strength to get through this life and to be faithful to continue to complete the work that he's given us to do. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, give us the strength to make it through this life. Keep that hope in front of us to know what you have in store ahead. Father, we want to see your kingdom on this earth as it is in heaven. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.